Jesuit priest and a professor at the Harvard Divinity School, where he's been a professor of comparative theology since 2005. His scholarship focuses primarily on Catholicism and Hinduism. From 2010 to 2017, he was the director of the Center for the Study of World Religions at Harvard. He has an incredible story, and he was generous enough to share it with me. Without further introduction, I give you Father Frank Clooney. Well, Father, I, I was sitting next to, first of all, thank you for doing this. I was sitting next to someone, we all came back to school today, and I was sitting next to a colleague of mine who teaches religions, but, uh, you know, he, he had sort of noted this project. I, I've interviewed him at some point, and I said, oh, you're going to love this guy. Talk to this guy tonight. Uh, he's at Harvard Divinity School. He's a Jesuit, uh, and he does comparative theology. He's really interested in Hinduism. Uh, I'm sure that's not an exhaustive intro, <laughs> but he, he goes, you're not talking about Frank Clooney, are you? And I thought, wow, <laughs> you know, if anybody were to describe what I did in, in three sentences, yeah. you know, they could have a million guesses. <laughs> Teaches in a Catholic school, right? Sure. Or never guess. So I thought that would be a great introduction to uh, what is it that you do that is so specific that you would be named so quickly? I'm curious to hear your introduction. Yes. Um, I mean, first of all, thank you for inviting me to do this. I think I admire people like yourself with the initiative to do interviews because it can be a great thing to, to hear from people, talk to people, you know, learn the person, not just the book or the, the message or something like that. So I'm glad to be here with you. Um, I mean, I think there, you know, from what you just said, the little anecdote, it, it would narrow down very quickly. Uh, first of all, Harvard University is not a Catholic or Jesuit university. Um, the last Jesuit to teach full-time at Harvard died in 1985. So it's not like there are many Jesuits teaching at Harvard University. Um, and then when you say you know, divinity school, uh, theology, Hinduism, comparative theology, it pretty much narrows it down to me. There would not be much competition certainly not at Harvard. Um, so I would be, and it, it kind of reflects the fact that I'm you know, already, it, it's predicted as a Catholic priest. I've been a Catholic priest a long time, but as a Jesuit, that we have this long tradition of the academic, the intellectual apostolate, as we say, you know, working with the mind, and that that allows Jesuits to, to flourish in academe and university settings. And usually in Catholic colleges or universities, places like Boston College, Fordham, Georgetown, and so on. But also if, if the opportunity presents itself to teach somewhere else. Um, and so it's part of Jesuit tradition that Jesuits will do things like teaching at places like Harvard. And, um, and you go on from there in terms of what, it certainly doesn't have to be religion or theology or philosophy. Um, you could have a professor in sciences or mathematics or really any field, but mine is theology with a focus on comparative with Hinduism. And I, I guess this, this could be a really massive, you could probably spend a book talking about this if you haven't already, <laughs> uh, but, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask about how you would come to be so deeply interested in two religious traditions um, and what that overlap might've looked like throughout your biography. Um, is it safe to assume that that your interest in Catholicism started in your own tradition? Was that your was that practice in the home? Yes, I mean I, I think um, so. You know, for somebody of my age, I just turned seventy two, so I'm, I'm happy old, birthday. Um, thank you. Um, I'm old enough that I um, have a strong you know traditional Catholic background. I was very young at the time of Vatican II. So I was, um, I guess, 12 when the council started, but I was old enough to have been an altar boy and with Latin. So mm -hmm. I learned the Latin prayers, was an altar boy with Latin, and then after a year, it was dropped. And they said, we're doing it in English from now on. So I have a little bit of the old church, you know, as a child, the church of the 1950s, but growing up, you know, an Irish Catholic family in New York City, a fairly traditional parish, uh, parents, fairly traditional, you know, devout, steadfast Catholics. 
went to Catholic grammar school taught by the nuns. Unlike some people, I thought the nuns were wonderful. They were great teachers. It was a great education. Went to a Jesuit high school, Regis High School in Manhattan, and then became a Jesuit. So, you know, I didn't, um, in the, and in those days, that was more common to uh, enter a seminary right away from high school because many of the college campuses were more like seminaries in those days anyway. But so I have a, a traditional Catholic upbringing. I didn't um, choose to become a Catholic at some point, was born into it. Um, and then I think from there, I have a great appreciation of what it means to belong deeply to a tradition, to be committed to it, to live it, to practice it, to think about it, and, and make a life of it. And so when I first encountered Hinduism in India, and I can tell you about that if you're interested, I realized that it, it, would, it, it would not do well to have a deep sense of Catholic faith and a really quick fast, superficial understanding of the Hindu faiths. Hmm. It should be parallel. So if it's if it's deep and long range and, and personal, that I would assume that the other tradition that I'm encountering is also deep and personal for so many people and therefore requires time and patience to begin to learn it. So I, you know, I, I didn't become a Catholic and I haven't become a Hindu. I've been studying Hindu traditions on and off since 1973 a long time, um, and um, am still a practicing Catholic, a practicing Catholic priest, and so on. But Hinduism has been part of my life for 50 years almost. <clears throat> How did you first even learn about Hinduism or get interested in it? Because um, there's a jump, right, from being, from maybe first brushing up against something to saying, I want to make my knowledge of this faith as deep um and sort of well understood as my in, as my knowledge you know of the faith that i grew up with mm -hmm. so how did you even first brush up against it yeah and it was quite a um, remarkable turn in my life that because this was nothing in my life that would predict that this would happen um so again entered the, the order right from high school um novitia training two years of basic training took my vows as a jesuit 1970 then sent to Fordham University in the Bronx to do a double major, you know, to get my BA. Uh, I was a classics major, Greek and Latin, because I'd done a lot of Greek and Latin in high school, and then a philosophy major, all philosophy majors and something else. So there was nothing in my upbringing about Asia, about Hinduism or Buddhism, and I didn't even take any courses on Hinduism or Buddhism in college. There was no particular professor who influenced me, whatever. But there was a conference uh, in 1971. So when I was partway into my studies of philosophy and classics at Fordham, where one of the main speakers, a Jesuit from the Philippines, he made a big point of telling us, when you become a Jesuit, you become a member of a global organization. You don't just become a New York Jesuit or a Philadelphia Jesuit or a California Jesuit. You become a, a Jesuit globally. It's one society of Jesus. And therefore, he, he sort of begged us. And, and there were people as young as me, 20 years old, and people 70, 80 years old in the room. Think of yourself internationally. You should have a heart as large as the world. You know, think globally, feel globally. The world belongs to you. You belong to the world. So that popped into my head an idea. I was destined at that point, um, getting Greek and Latin, I'd go back and teach Greek and Latin at Regis High School or take the subway down to Xavier High School, also in Manhattan, teach there, something like that. But I got the bright idea in my head, well, that if I am a member of a global organization, then I should uh, be global. And this for me was quite remarkable because I was not a particularly adventuresome person, but had this idea and, and looked around. You know, I had to plan, to, I had to, you know, ask permission where to do my teaching experience. The Regency is called, between philosophy and theology study. And so I could propose ideas, but I, I was not the one to decide. So I, I contacted in those days, of course, by, by letters, um, a priest in the Philippines, a priest in Ecuador, a priest in Africa, getting feedback about, you know, and they're all saying, oh, we'd love to have you come, please come. We'd love to have a young Jesuit here. Um, but I also was fascinated endlessly by India in my heart of hearts, because not because of study, but because 
really of two figures, um, Mahatma Gandhi and Mother Teresa. And somehow it seemed right that these figures were leading spiritual public intellectuals who were also committed to the poor, committed to nonviolence. And I said, wouldn't it be wonderful if I went to India? And I also knew, I think somebody told me that Greek and Latin are related to Sanskrit, the classical language of India. Mm. And so I could say, oh, I could use my Greek and Latin to learn Sanskrit. And so I didn't go to India um, because of visa issues. I went to Nepal, to Kathmandu. So I was up there in the Himalayas, this little, relatively small country between the giants of India and China. Nepal actually has about 30 million people, so it's not tiny. Um, Kathmandu, the capital city, had been opened up to the, to the wider world around 1950 when the king took control of the country from the prime ministers. And the first thing he did, one of the first things was to invite the Jesuits from India to come up and set up a school, St. Xavier's School. So one thing led to another and I ended up in 73, right after I graduated from Fordham University, um, teaching at St. Xavier's High School in Kathmandu. And a very Hindu Buddhist city, you know, many beautiful temples, pagoda style temples, uh, Buddhist uh, monasteries, Buddhist stupas, these, you know, reliquaries for the Buddha and so on. And, you know, native Nepali Buddhists, Tibetan Buddhists that had fled from the Chinese in the 1950s. And all the boys I taught were Hindu and Buddhist. And I think I found, and it was a, a good intuition, and I'm sure you found this at St. Joe's, if you, if you want to teach, you have to be willing to learn from your students. If you come in and say, I'm here to just present, present knowledge to you, you're going to be really boring or arrogant or something. So I, I had to start learning about Hinduism and Buddhism from the boys. And they're no scholars, but they lived it, their families lived it, they have temples nearby. I'd go to them to places of worship and then started bringing Hindu texts, Buddhist texts into the class, um, little bits of texts like the Bhagavad Gita or the life of the Buddha. So it all began there, 1973, there, this existential experience teaching in a high school up in the Himalayas, Catholic kid from New York teaching Hindus and Buddhists. And it just clicked with me that this is right. Mm. Uh, it's right for me to be a Catholic. It's right for me to be a Jesuit. I'm doing what God is asking me to do, but it's also right to step outside my, you know, very New York, very Irish Catholic Catholicism and not be afraid to enter another religious universe and to be in a part of the world where there was no tradition of Christianity in, in Nepal. So it was a very different place. And it was wonderful for me to be there. And it all started then. That's fascinating. Well, you might've said this, what were you teaching exactly when you were there? So the school, the deal, the king wanted the Jesuits to come up because he was opening the country and he wanted some good schools, English medium schools in the country so that the, the upper middle class and the rich would not simply go to India, go to the UK and never come back. So he wanted high quality school um, after the first few grades in the primary school, English medium. And so I was basically there because I didn't know any of the language when I got there in Nepali. Um, which is like Hindi, also based on Sanskrit, um, is basically to teach English language subjects. Um, so to teach um, spelling, grammar, pronunciation. We got into you know having students give give um, memorized text and recite them and so on. So all the English language subjects. Um, but the decisive one that made the difference was uh, the deal with the king of Nepal was that we could run the school and teach anything we wanted. And this would be going on 20 some years before I got there. But proselytization and you know, overt efforts to get them to become Christian was not allowed. Hmm. And that if a boy became a Christian, fine, no problem. But if if the word got out that the fathers were, you know, designing the school to convert the boys who came to the school, then the school would close. So as in the schools in India, uh, we didn't have catechism classes or Bible classes but had what was called moral science classes. And moral science was basically principles of virtue, ethics, um, you know, don't lie, don't steal, respect the other, share what you have. 
with rational grounding, like why we should do this philosophically grounded in human nature and so on like that. So no reference to Hinduism or Buddhism and no reference explicitly to Christian values, even though it was actually very much Christian values. So teaching this moral science to teenagers, I found it and they found it pretty boring um, because they're kind of using, you know, um, rational thinking, philosophizing to talk about why be good, why be virtuous. I think I, I decided we needed stories. We needed good examples. And, and I was smart enough at that point to figure out, well, it's not going to be, it may, in my mind, be Jesus and stories from the Bible, but that with Hindu and Buddhist boys, it needed to be stories that they could relate to. So that's when I realized in the moral science classes to talk about virtue and the life of virtue, stories of Rama and Krishna, um, Hindu saints, the Buddha, lives of the Buddha, were full of all kinds of moral wisdom and moral tales. And bringing those into the classroom was the great breakthrough because that had almost never happened in the history of the school. Again, the fathers were respectful of all students' language, uh, religion, but didn't go there, you know, figuratively didn't go to those traditions, but kept the distance. And I was the one who kind of crossed over and said, well, obviously it's a no-brainer. These are Hindu and Buddhist boys. We'll, we'll read texts of the Buddha and Krishna in class. And so that opened the door for me to learn as well as them. And then it turned out they're actually, you know, despite being teenagers, they're actually quite pious, many of them. And they knew uh, what are called bhajans or, or devotional songs. For a while, we had a, a little room set up in the school um, where they could bring in statues of the Buddha, images of Krishna, and so on. And had like uh, every week, we had like a prayer service, which I just you know, observed basically to make sure they behave themselves. But they would lead it in incense and flowers and singing songs in their language and so on like that. So it all kind of opened up as kind of a living experience that overflowed into going to the different temples with them and so on like that. But it started through this course, Moral Science, saying that you know the best way to get to morality with people who are religious is through religious morality and you know, stories of faith. Does that still inform, this is again a big question, and, and I'd love to go back and pick apart little pieces of what you just said. It's fascinating. But does that idea this that sort of started with your experience in Nepal, that the best way to teach moral science or moral values is to sort of use these religious traditions, does that still inform what you do? Uh, yes and no. I mean, on the no side... Um... There it was. It was rel it was relatively simpler because, as I said, all the boys were either Nepali Hindu or Nepali Buddhist. So it was a limited scope. At a place like Boston College, we have had students of a number of different traditions, and at Harvard students of many different religious traditions, um, and also students who are spiritual but not religious. Uh, so all over the place, it's it's very diverse. I couldn't possibly relate to all of that you know in terms of learning the traditions um, and pretty much in my courses i'll use hindu examples and christian examples back and forth and say but this gives you a way of, of, of thinking about learning interreligiously but on the other level I, I insist and i'll you know we begin class next week um, and i'll tell the students so i'm catholic i'm a catholic priest and all that i'll tell them it's no secret um, but for you in the class we're going to be reading Christian, largely Catholic and Hindu texts. I'm not presuming that you are Catholic or Hindu or should be, but if you come as a Buddhist background, as Muslim, as spiritual but not religious, as a Mormon or a Quaker or um, Confucian or a humanist, God bless you, you know, come as you are and read these things from where you are. Um, and so that, in a sense of the, the moral claims and the moral values have to come from where we are and who we are. And I think that's true for me and probably true for you. And therefore the students who show up in my classes, be they undergrads or 25 or 35, sometimes they're even older at Harvard. What is your life like? Where are you coming from? And I think it's a very Jesuit value in a very Jesuit sense that you know, God is operative in our lives even when we don't use God language. You know, God is with us. God is speaking to us through the movements of our heart. 
to understand who you are and where God is in your life works, I think, whether one is a Christian or not. <clears throat> yeah, I think when I asked that question, I was interested as you got to um, in sort of having this foundation, like one of your first teaching experience was you were explicitly told not to try to, you know, quote unquote, convert or evangelize. Um, and I was curious if you still sort of enter the classroom, it sounds like you do with that, with that sort of um, MO. Yeah, I mean, at, at Boston College, which is a big Catholic university. So I, I went to, so I was ordained, to, so I went to Nepal. Then I came back and studied theology at the Jesuit school, which then was here in Cambridge, Mass. It's now over at BC. Uh, I was ordained a priest in 78, then did a PhD at University of Chicago, learning a lot of Sanskrit and Tamil, the South Indian language, and started teaching at Boston College in 1984. And so BC was already in the 1980s, a growing, expanding university, a diversifying student body, um, Catholics across the spectrum from very conservative to very liberal, and many students who are not Catholic or even Christian. So it was a diversifying place, but there were on the faculty and among the Jesuits, some who thought our job is to bring them to Christ. And our job is to um, you know, show people at least good examples such that they will become Christian and become Catholic, or if they are Catholic, to be better Catholics. And I, I favor you know, the idea of being better Catholics if you're a Catholic. But I was also very mindful that um, the most important step to take and this is when I was at BC, is that whatever your faith tradition, you have to grow up in it, you have to mature in it, you have to take responsibility for it, you have to critique it, and you have to decide, is it just all lip service or are you actually gonna live your faith? And I think my instinct was, if you are a Muslim, then be a good Muslim, be a serious Muslim. Yes, respect everybody else, but live your faith. And if you're a Hindu and if you're a Catholic, live your faith. And then when I came to Harvard, if, if I didn't have a, a sense of respect for people's traditions, I wouldn't have gotten the job and I wouldn't be teaching here because Harvard um, you know, has no place for proselytization or overt efforts to convert people and so on. In a sense, I mean, I've told people over the years, my, one of my values is, I mean, the two things. One would be, I do believe it's infinitely worthwhile for people to know Jesus Christ and to have encounter with Jesus Christ. I don't think you have to become a, a Christian for that. I mean, normally people do, but you don't have to. So that's, but that's sort of an infinite value. On the other side, I think my goal in a sense has been to convert people to their own faith tradition. As I was converted in a sense to being a better Catholic by spending those years in Kathmandu. Um, and, and you know, who knows what my life would have been if I hadn't gone to Kathmandu, but 54 years of Jesuit now, still a priest, still going to the parish on Sunday, still preaching, trying to be a good Catholic, I think is intricately interwoven with having studied Hindu traditions all these years. So Hinduism has made me a better Catholic. And I think studying comparative religion, comparative theology, studying outside your faith tradition can, if it's done properly, make you a better member of the faith to which you belong. Some people will convert, and, that, and that's a wonderful thing. But many people won't and don't need to, but they need to recover the religious roots that they came from. How, how long was your experience in Nepal? Uh, too short. It was about 25 months. I was there for a little over two years. And I uh, know, you, sorry. I was just going to say, I mean, that was the the longest time I've spent in Asia was that period. Um, I Later on in grad school, I spent about 15 months in South India, Madras, working on my dissertation. Then I went back on it for another year in sabbatical. Then I probably had another 15 trips to India, ranging from literally from four days to three months. Um, so a range of visits. As, as you get older and as you're busy with things and all that, it's harder to spend a long time in a place, but um, I keep going, you know, now that COVID's over, I hope to be in India next summer. Um, but that first time in Nepal was actually the longest, longest time I had there. Well, if you ever need an able-bodied chaperone at any point in your trips, 
Okay. Keep me in mind. We've got a great international airport right down the road. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay. So remind me, you were, um, I, I forget what the words are. You you were novitiate. You were in your regency. Is that the word? Yeah. So the, the terminology, which is still pretty much used, is the, the novitiate, you're a novice the first two years, and you're sort of experimental. Then after two years, if it works out, you take your vows, poverty, chastity, obedience. Then in those days, because we all entered, so many of us entered from high school, we had to do our BA. Mm. And so I went to Fordham, which was often just loosely called philosophy study, but it was BA studies too. Now it's called first studies, meaning um, first studies. And even today we have men entering, certainly with their BA, but some may have gone to law school, medical school, have PhDs in this or that, whatever, but still have to do some philosophy and so on. So I did it for three years and got my BA. Then the Regency, it's a curious thing. Regency um, has, if you look at Oxford English Dictionary, it's a peculiar word. But for some reason, that period when in Jesuit training, when Jesuits are between philosophy study and theology study, doing some active work is called Regency or the Regency. So I that. <laughs> then after that, did theology study, as I said, here in Cambridge, Mass for three years, and then was ordained and then went to grad school. Okay. So I, I'm really curious, and this might get, um, you know, I can't imagine not getting personal, but I, my apologies if, it, if it's too personal, feel free to, you know, skate by this, but I'm really interested in the sort of Jesuit tradition of discernment. Um, and this heavy emphasis on discernment, of course, you know, through the retreats and the exam and, and, you know, I'm sure you could fill me in on all the other, you know, pieces mm -hmm. of discernment throughout that tradition. But I'm really interested in this. Uh, I, I've talked to a few scholars now in this sort of project, and I'm really interested in the sort of Jesuit tradition of discernment as it relates to you also discerning your sort of scholarly interests. Mm -hmm. um, and it sounds like in Nepal, you started to sort of organically study, um, you know, the traditions of the kids that you were teaching, um, whether that be an observation sort of in the sort of room with the incense or even going through the text and teaching that those moral sciences through their texts. Um, I'm curious what that process of discernment was like. You said it felt right to be there and to be doing that work. I'm curious about how that process of discernment sort of escalated towards you being, you know, convinced, uh, if that is the case, or, or at least convinced enough to act on doing this scholarship more seriously, um, you know, at an institution. Yeah. Well, I suppose you probably talked already to people about the spiritual exercises, you know, and the elemental original experiences of Ignatius Loyola who himself is an example of discernment. Um, yeah, we just celebrated this year the 100th, the 500th anniversary of his uh, being wounded in battle and his lying in the bed for the year and then beginning to realize there were different movements in his life and, and being drawn to the spiritual, living in the cave in Manresa, finding that you know not through rationality only and, and for him, certainly not through like visions and voices and so on, but rather the movements of his heart had to read his own heart, believing that God was speaking to him that way. He put together then, you know, as he got his life straightened out um, and met these other men who became his companions, the little book called The Spiritual Exercises, which is basically a fairly boring book. I mean, if you look at it, it's not, you know, the poetry of John of the Cross. It's not the, the beautiful writing of Teresa of Avila and so on, or, you know, Meister Eckhart and so on like that. It's just like a manual. It's almost like a cookbook of some sort. You know, do this, do this. There, there are a couple of beautiful parts, but not many, I don't think. But basically, it's exercises um, to get you to calm down, to step away from the world around you, to be in a quiet place. And, you know, the ideal retreat was for um a 30-day period a month um, many many people make you know an eight-day retreat or a three-day retreat whatever it can, people can manage but basically to step away and through prolonged meditations on your own life um, in terms of um, 
God's grace, uh, where God has been in your life, sin in your life, disorder in your life, things you need to change in your life. And then th the bulk of the retreat is the life of Christ, the passion and death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. Day after day, five times a day, you just are with those stories and you're putting yourself there. So it's not just reading about Jesus feeding the 5,000, but you're sitting there listening to him and then the bread gets passed to you and you eat some of the bread or you're the blind man and he touches your eyes and you can see. What kind of emotions come to your heart and mind as you feel transformed because these stories become your story? And then which person in the Gospels are you? Are you um, somebody who's cured by Jesus and goes back home? or in the crowd that eats their fill and then goes back home, or are you those who leave everything and follow him and become disciples, apostles, the men and women who are with him most closely. All of that is kind of the, the world of discernment. And I think part of being a Jesuit on two levels is it's a whole process of discernment, certainly the formation period, you know, from entrance to vows to ordination is a long period of saying, is this going to work? Is it gonna work for me? And does the, does the Society of Jesus want me? Um, and there may be all kinds of reasons having nothing to do with world religions, why it works or doesn't work with an individual. But basically, um, in that context, I think what I was discovering as a young Jesuit um, was a process, as, as you already have said, I think, a process of discernment. Here I am, 22 years old, I arrive in Kathmandu, I'm in this classroom, we're reading Bhagavad Gita together. This seems to be from God. It's consoling, it's beautiful. They're coming alive, I'm coming alive. How could this not be from God? You know, Ignatius warns you, you know, the, the, the devil can come to you in a garb of light and trick you. So you have to have your, you know, be, be careful. But nonetheless, it seemed like the right thing. It seemed to be doing good, it seemed to be fruitful. And, you know, the older Jesuits there, they could have pulled the plug at any point and said, okay, you're not going to teach moral science anymore. And no, we're not having that room where they have their prayer service on Thursday evenings or whatever. They could have pulled the plug, but they, they sort of said, well, we don't do that, but you're doing it. So God bless you, do it. And it, it sort of, it worked. Um, and then when I came back, uh, clearly in theology study, I was interested in Hinduism, Buddhism, the school was right near Harvard, so I came over to Harvard, took some courses in the Divinity School as a student. Um, then I asked after ordination, all right, now I'm a new priest, what do I want to do? I want to get a PhD in Indian studies. And, and most religious orders would say, no, you can't do that. But Jesuits said, yes, you can do that. And so I did, I went to Chicago. But if the order had said, no, you can't do that, then I wouldn't have done that. Mm. So it's my discernment, but the order somehow decided that you know, no one else is going to do their studies in Hinduism at University of Chicago, but Clooney can do it. And we give him a blessing, we send him to do it, and then he does it, and then he's still a Jesuit after that, and then he teaches at BC, and you know, happily ever after. Hmm. That's fascinating. I'm keeping an eye on the time. I think I could parse through your biography for, for days. Um, so I want to accelerate a little bit. When I was talking, I was speaking with my colleague earlier today. I was thankful he gave me a little crash course on Hinduism, um, and he gave me a little bit of a crash course on you. Obviously, he he knew of you, um, and he's the one thing that he sort of like lit up as he was describing you. And he said one of the things that um, Father Clooney does is that I jotted this down. He really wants to take uh, another traditions faith claims seriously so he's not doing comparative religions where he's sort of saying yeah well they look at these people they believe this and look at these people they at least in his words you you were going a step beyond that and trying to take them um so seriously as to imagine okay like what if this was true what would it mean and and can we square that with what we believe is true um do i have that right so far yeah Pretty good, yeah. Good, okay. <laughs> okay. Good, I got it secondhand, so I just want to yeah, make sure. Yeah. Plus, I'm going to see him tomorrow so I can hold him accountable okay. for that. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Um, and when we were talking about this, I, I, I kind of raised this question 
as a priest in one tradition, while that's that seems like a really good-hearted um, effort and it's done seemingly in good faith, is there necessarily a moment where they don't overlap and where you then have to return to that sort of pedantic, look at these people over here, they believe this, mm-hmm. um, or this is why they're wrong. I'm sure you don't say that in class, but in that effort to see how things overlap, are you always left with how things don't overlap and forced to sort of choose, uh, grant one tradition primacy uh, over the other? Well, I think, um, first of all, um, your your friend is is very wise and and, and puts things well. That I think, um, again, as I said earlier, you know, growing up Catholic, I sort of know, you know, grow up having a sense of what it means to what it means to belong to a religious tradition. And I, I empathize with many young people today who didn't have like a coherent upbringing and don't, you know, didn't didn't grow up with a coherent single tradition. But growing up that way, again, as I said earlier, um, if that's the way I've been Catholic, why would I think that just flipping through a paperback book on something or getting an intro to Hinduism would be sufficient? Um, I would, you know, Catholics would say, well, no, just looking through some book about Christianity is not going to get, you have to immerse yourself, you have to, you know, get into it and be patient with it and learn from it at multiple levels. And so um, when I talk about comparative theology as opposed to comparative religion, the idea is really that on a very simple level, theology is faith-seeking understanding. And there's a way in which the, the work of the theologian who's a scholar is faith grounded it's not it should be objectively accessible so that scholars who don't have faith can can read what the theologian writes and say okay this is good scholarship but for the personal theologian in the church it comes out of this ground of faith and i think in some ways you could say and i don't know if i've ever actually put it this way um learning another religion is like understanding seeking faith so faith-seeking understanding is you go out and then you you learn through your mind, you read text, you learn languages, you go places, you watch things, you ask questions, all the process of understanding, realizing that I'm not gone far enough yet if I don't begin to have real empathy with the faith of that tradition. And so that's the target and, and the, the ability to go beyond standing back and like watching it from a distance to okay, this is resonating with me. Um, it's, it's, it resonates like my own faith resonates with me. It's beginning to make sense. I could imagine living in this faith tradition. And I, I don't blame scholars who don't do that, but I think that's what I do. Um, now you're asking the question, you know, when you do that, um, does it come to a point where you can't do that anymore? And I think I would say several things. One would be um, some people just keep going. And I know people here at Harvard and other places who study, um, you can hear the horn, probably some truck or something like that. Um, people who study Hinduism for a long time and become Hindus or people who study Islam and become Muslims. And, and that's, person. you know, some people do that. They, they're so deeply immersed in the tradition they learn that they convert to it. Um, and my model has always been this dynamic back and forth of learning the other, resonating back to my own back and forth. It's also, I think, influenced by my um, my understanding of what Hindus want from me. And I've never got a sense from Hindus I talk to, both in this country and in India, that they would be particularly happy if I became a Hindu. But rather, the point, and, and people, you know, as famous as Mahatma Gandhi would say this, and um, and, and in Buddhism, the Dalai Lama and others, uh, Swami Vivekananda brought Hinduism to the West 19th century, Sri, Sri Ramakrishna, his teacher. You have to go, if you can't find God in the faith into which you were born, why do you think switching religions is going to do you much good? So go. you don't know your own tradition. You have to go back to your own tradition and understand it. There's a beautiful passage, I'm sure you've read Thomas Merton. Um, in his beautiful book, Seven Story Mountain. You know, he's at Columbia, he's thinking about faith and so on. And he meets this, um, he calls him, I think, a little Hindu monk called Brahmachari, who's come through New York in orange robes and so on like that. 
and he and he goes to Brahmachari and says, you know, Swami, please tell me what to read. And he thinks he's waiting for Swami to tell him, you know, read the Bhagavad Gita, read this Buddhist text, read the Yoga Sutras or something. And and Brahmachari says to him, you should go read Teresa of Avila. You should go read John of the Cross. You should go read your Bible. Um, go back and learn your own tradition. And and Merton comments something like, um, I'd have to look it up, but it's almost as if God sent Brahmachari, the monk from India, all this way to Colombia to tell me to study my own Christian tradition. And that kind of resonance there. Um, but at a certain point still, and just push it one level further, you know, he's saying, well, what at a certain point of saying, you know, I'm, I'm not a Hindu and I have the Christian worldview and I believe, you know, every Sunday in church, we recite the creed and so on. This is not the same thing as what Hindus believe. It's not the same thing as the Buddhists believe and so on. I think I, I do at a certain point say, that is so obviously true. And I probably know it better than almost anyone that Hindus and Catholics do not believe the same things and that there's a difference. However, I don't feel obliged to therefore say, it's my job now to pass judgment and to lecture people on the fact that there is this difference here. And in my opinion, here's what's wrong with Hinduism, this and this and this and this and this. I'd rather say I've come to this great wide opening where there is some difference and I, I'm not a bishop, I'm not the Pope, I'm not the Vatican. Nobody's asking me to pass judgment on people. And I say, I'm aware of these differences, I see these differences, I go as far as I can and then I turn back. Just as if I was, I never did it actually, but in Kathmandu, if I said, well, I'm gonna go trekking up in the Himalayas, you know, you fly up to base camp and then you start walking up, I would never do this, but you start walking up into the icy mountains and, and you go as far as you can. And then if you're not insane, you turn back and say, I can't, I can't breathe. It's too cold. I turn back. But you don't deny that Mount Everest is there, that there's a tough to it. You go as far as you can, then you turn back. And again, I, I think for all kinds of reasons, I've entered into learning deeply from Hindu traditions in myriad different ways, go as far as I can and, and feel that my mission from the Society of Jesus from the church and from Jesus Christ himself is to go there, but don't do what you can't do. And so at a certain point to say, I can go no further. Um, I know all of this. I can't synthesize it into some ideal religion. I'm not gonna come up with a theory about what's wrong with Hinduism. And at a certain point, there's a kind of silence, I guess, like I, there's nothing more I can say or do nothing more has been given to me on this topic, but rather to dwell with the fact that I know all of this from my Catholic roots, I know all of this from my Hindu studies, and they're beautiful next to one another, but they're not the same thing. Leave it at that. And so the, those differences do matter. Yeah, I mean, they do matter because I think it's, 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 it's not respectful of people's traditions to erase the differences. Um, and once you begin to learn a tradition, it doesn't have to be Hinduism, it could be uh, Reformed Judaism or Sunni Shia Islam or Taoism. You, you, you begin to see all kinds of differences and, and we ought not to be you know, colonialists or imperialists where we level the other and then make it just like ourselves. No, there are different languages, there are different cultures, different musics, different foods, and it's not on the same level, but the traditions are different from one another. So you, you, you see, you encounter that difference, you take it to heart, you respect it. And the differences do matter, but how do they matter is a question, you know, we're not living in the ninth century or the 18th century, we're living in pluralistic America in which what is the response of a good Catholic to religious pluralism? I don't think for most of us, could be or should be condemnation of the religious other. And this is certainly not the teaching of the Catholic Church, which says, you know, respect for all different traditions. And Pope Francis shows this more than anyone. Therefore, um, to, to cultivate in my students, even if you disagree with this, even if it's not compatible with your faith, nonetheless, learn it, learn from it, 
be reverent toward it and then go and do whatever you're going to do. <clears throat> I'm having a hard time with the, um, there's something really interesting about the Merton story. Mm -hmm. And I have not, I have not read that, but I appreciate you giving me too much credit. Um, I yeah, often seeing it, I see, I see, Mountain, you got to read it. I see it laying around sometimes at school and may, I should maybe borrow it for an extended period of time. I, um, there's something fascinating about the Merton story, excuse me, that almost seems to suggest and this might just be an issue of interpretation but it almost seems to suggest that merton's deference to that was he a monk or a priest i'm sorry what was the word he's a monk a hindu monk okay so i'm sorry his sort of deference to the monk right would be something like um i i don't even say that merton was like hey help me find god that might be a, a bit of a jump but even just the deference like hey what what would you recommend i read to maybe expand my mind right mm -hmm. um his response though is read your own tradition go deeper mm -hmm. into your own tradition and there's a suggestion there and, and you sort of echoed this at least in my interpretation when you said my goal if anything is to sort of convert people to their own faith traditions uh and you referenced meister eckhart who's got this amazing quote, I think if I'm remembering this correctly, which is something like the ultimate leave taking is leaving God for God or something like that. Mm. And, and there's something across, if I had to try to force a line through the, those three points, um, it almost seems to suggest that there's a common well water that these different religious traditions are pointed at. So yes, while there are, there are differences in the traditions themselves, um, do you do you think that those stories suggest that despite those differences, they're pointed at something similar or maybe even the same thing? Call it God or call it something else? I think um, at this point, I try to be very careful because there's a certain kind of relativism that easily, and, and you weren't saying this, but easily can fall into all the religions are basically the same. They're basically all saying the same thing or they're all rivers flowing into the same ocean or the ocean flowing into the rivers or whatever. And that in some sense, you know, as, as some people have said, to, to know that all the religions come from a common experience, ideally you should have a God's eye view and be up above seeing them all and speaking about, ah, now I understand Islam and Judaism and Christianity and Hinduism and Buddhism and so on. And I see that they're all of the same source. I, I don't like to go in that direction, and I don't claim that kind of knowledge. Um, however, on another level, I think there are good Hindu reasons and good Christian reasons for saying that, in a sense, all is one, that there is a deep unity. Because, I, you know, just take the Christian view. I mean, I believe in God who made heaven and earth, uh, one God, source of reality, source of the world. Um, and God didn't just make the Christian parts or the natural parts and the Christian parts. And then the rest, I mean, some people may say the rest is all from the devil. But I think in some ways it's part of God. And this is, I think, teaching of the church now that the religions of the world are all somehow signs of God's compassion and God's mercy, a gift of God to the world. But that wouldn't work very well if each religion sort of just went off in a different direction in their totally hostile and incompatible with one another. So one God, one story of reality, one ultimate beginning and end. And that I think we can be unafraid, open Catholics who say all of this somehow fits together in God's mystery. My mind is not big enough to see it all, but nonetheless, it all fits together. And there are Hindu views, you know, ranging from thousands of years ago, that, you know, truth is one and reality is one, people who are wise realize that it's called by different names. And so it's easier from a Hindu perspective to say, sure, uh, Christians and Hindus and so on may be talking about the same thing, but you use your language, I use my language, and we have different ways of talking about it. Now, I don't think that explanation is the same as what I just said about in the creed, God made everything. 
but they both testify to the fact that there's kind of a, a coherence, a unity, a basic goodness to reality. However, it's explained, and therefore not light versus darkness, good versus evil, you know, the war of religions until all but one are destroyed. That kind of, um, you know, polemic, I think we don't need to go to. And I think one can respect that all everything is somehow from God and is given to us by God without saying, oh, it's all the same. It doesn't matter. Just pick one. It doesn't matter. No, it's God gives different gifts to different people. And and neither and, and we're not in the position to get up and yell at people saying, all right, now you have five minutes to drop your religion and come to our religion. Um, so, so I think some kind of a kind of a spiritual openness is required. And what Merton found, and you know, he wrote voluminously about Zen and Buddhism, and uh, gave you know novice talks on yoga and so on. Like later in his life, his, his short life, with the monk is, isn't. I mean, he's, so he's a Columbia student. He likes to read books. He likes to collect books. Here's somebody from India. Oh, Swami, tell me what to read. You know, you think I'll, I'll go to that bookstore and buy a few more books. He's not saying that Hinduism and, and, and the Christianity and the Catholicism he's about to be, you know, convert to are all the same, but he's saying this existential encounter where he's talking to this Hindu monk who could have just ignored him or said, oh, I always tell Christians read Bhagavad Gita. Um, no, read your sacred texts, read your spiritual classics. That there was this moment where going to the other turned back to himself. And it was possible because the other was not demonic, hostile, evil, out to destroy, but rather the monk intuited something about Merton and said, what you need to do, Thomas, is read your own tradition. The problem you have is you're interested in everything, but you got to go deep. And so Merton went deep and became a Trappist monk and went very deep. Hmm. And, and I think when you were retelling that story, something sort of stuck with me when, when you, I think if I remember the words correctly, you said, and I, you know, I didn't take this to be your beliefs necessarily, but your interpretation of what maybe the monk was getting at, which was, um, but I'm curious if it is your belief. Um, and what I think I remember you saying, he said, was if you can't find God in your own tradition, you know, what makes you think switching to another religion is going to help you find God? Mm -hmm. And again, you sort of return to this idea that there is a path to God or multiple paths to God. Um, is that, I mean, what do you even do with that? Yeah, so to clarify, I mean, I think I've run into that as a, as a common Hindu belief, and I believe the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh and others have said similar things. You don't have to become a Hindu or a Buddhist. Being spiritual means you will find the spiritual in the tradition that you belong to or belong to. In, in Seven Story Mountain, the monk doesn't use those words exactly, but that's part of, I think that's the effect of what he was saying. And I think the idea is that the, if Merton had, had not met the Hindu monk, would he have read you know, the imitation of Christ, Meister Eckhart, John of the Cross, and so on? He might have. I mean, somebody else could have recommended these books to him. But this encounter, meeting another person of another faith, forced Merton to find his way back into his own Christian tradition. And I think that, and he's saying, you know, God sent this monk all the way from India to tell Thomas Merton this. In some sense, I went to Kathmandu. Um, I, you know, I, I, there were a few students I know who, you know, in those years maybe became Christian in Kathmandu, but I wasn't, you know, the main cause of their converting. But in a sense, I was converted to a, a more rich, mature Catholicism by being in Kathmandu. And who knows, you know, if I stayed in Manhattan, maybe the same thing would happen. Who knows? But nonetheless, I think this idea that the the religious other, the effect of this encounter, which you don't have to like make a big theory of all religions point to the same source or whatever, but rather the encounter of the other religion can be incredibly valuable in teaching you to grow up in the tradition to which you belong. Because if we only know our own tradition, 
And if we only have our own faith, we can either be astoundingly, you know, poorly educated, or we can be very naive saying, well, the reason I belong to my faith is because it's the only one that, you know, promotes goodness. It's the only one that believes in love. It's the only one that believes in service to the neighbor. Incredibly ignorant views. Um, whereas learning it religiously, you you begin you you begin to get on a journey you can't easily turn back from. The more you know, the more you can know. And the point I think is not to, you know, be encyclopedic and say I will now learn everything about all religions, but rather, insofar as I enter again the depths of this ocean or climbing Mount Everest, you go as far as you can and realize. If I go any further, I'm going to sink in this ocean or I'm going to freeze to death in this mountain. You turn back. But in fact, you come home differently. So I came home from Nepal after two years, still on the same plan. You know, I went to Cambridge Mass and studied theology for ordination, but I wasn't the same person who went two years earlier. And I think that had to be due to teaching Hindu and Buddhist boys, being in a Hindu Buddhist culture. And it was a gift from God. It, it wasn't, it, it was a gift from God that I was somehow able to be open to and learn from Hindu traditions as lived, as practiced, as believed, as gracious. And that made a big difference for me. I, I have two questions to end on. If you're not totally pressed for time, you can feel yeah. free to, you reserve that right wholly. Okay, no, go ahead. Um, and the second question is, will be meant to, to wrap things up. Um, but before that, when, when you're in this task, as I alluded to earlier, sort of um, in the words of my colleague, and dare I say friend, um, when you're in this task of, of taking other traditions faith claims seriously, trying to, if not reconcile with them with your own, then, then at least comparing and seeing how they line up or maybe how they don't line up. For the things that maybe don't inevitably line up um, in, the, in the Hindu tradition, maybe something like Maya or um, something like the idea that everything is the Brahmin, um, this, Hopefully my uh, my ignorance isn't showing too much. I just have a very cursory. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but but those things that maybe don't immediately gel with someone's idea of Catholicism. Do those things, those maybe loose ends, are there moments in cat in the Catholic tradition where they are reconciled by maybe aberrant thinkers like the uh, the mystics? You you know not that that's one neat category, but you referenced. Eckhart and and when I was talking to my buddy this morning about some that task of reconciling those things, uh, I, my mind was racing thinking about how some of the mystics said things that I thought start to sound like uh, those categories that those loose ends right. that I alluded to. Right, right. Yeah, I mean this this is another whole world to open up about the intellectual exchange among traditions among people. Who truly believe that they can learn intelligently up to a certain point at least interreligiously I, I mean and this is, in a sense is the it, it's as old as the just to take the catholic church it's as old as the catholic church i mean that um you know that what did the the, the so-called fathers of the church we might today say the fathers and mothers of the church growing up in jerusalem being jewish um learn from the greek world learn from the you know the pagan philosophers, read Plato, read Aristotle, read Plotinus, read the Romans, that there was a sense that somehow being totally grounded in the revelation given to the people of Israel, that then Jesus was a Jew and the first Christians were Jews, that didn't mean they had to shut their minds down and say, woe on pagan wisdom. A few of the early people like Tertullian said, you know, Athens and Jerusalem have nothing in common. But the great message of the church was, you know, it led to the Roman Catholic Church, was this great meeting rapprochement of pagan culture and biblical culture. And then in the Middle Ages, uh, people are often surprised, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas, the 
the greatest of all Catholic theologians, one thing that he's noted for, as scholars have pointed out, is seriously learning everything he could about you know, the Arab philosophers thinking about divine reality, causality, the nature of knowledge. And from Maimonides, the great Jewish thinker, you know, quoting him in the Summa Theologiae, uh, you know, reading what he could of the Jewish and Muslim sources. Um, not saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'm a Catholic, I have nothing to learn from them, but because I'm a Catholic, I can learn. And then finally, just the, the final example, you, know, you talk about, um, you know, all is one, or the world is Maya, you know, Atman, Brahman, these realities. Um, in the, you know, in the, in the 19th century, but notably in the early 20th century, there was a whole school of Jesuit learning in Calcutta, as it was then called in, in India, of Jesuit scholars who learned Sanskrit and learned to find ways of rapprochement between Vedanta, the teaching on the self and so on, and Christian theology. Hmm. And they really believed that there would be an intellectual meeting ground enabled and propelled by Thomas Aquinas. Um, and they, they did a lovely set of um, pamphlets that finally came out as a book called To Christ Through the Vedanta. And that learning Vedanta, learning Indian philosophy would be another way to Christ. Um, and then, you know, later on, um, uh, and I won't go into names now because our time is short, but, you know, in, in the 1950s and 60s, uh, Benedictine monks who came to India, um, you know, studying the Upanishads, uh, meditating, doing yoga practice, um, up to people like me. I mean, my second book was called Theology After Vedanta, um, you know, reading the Vedanta traditions and learning from it. There's a long tradition of learning, and, and you could multiply this with rabbinic Judaism, with Islam, with Confucianism, and something like that, that the intellectual exchange doesn't necessarily have to be inspired only for certain mystics, but anybody who has their head screwed on right, who can read their own tradition, should be able to pick up and learn another. So if somebody knows Aquinas well, there's no excuse for their not, you know, learning Vedanta or learning, you know, reading Islamic commentary and so on. So there's, there's great worlds of exchange. And the wonderful thing about Catholic tradition, just talking about the Catholic, is that we have you know, the, the biblical heritage and revelation, we have the mystical traditions, we have the lives of the saints, and we have this incredible intellectual infrastructure that um, despite sometimes, we, you know, some leaders seem to be blind and anti-rational, but for the most part, it's a great tradition of reasoning, faith as seeking understanding that en enables us to open our minds to the entire world. Beautiful. I think to end, Father Clooney, what would you recommend I read? And I, I know that sometimes, I hope that's an obvious callback to your Merton story, but I um, I know that sometimes make, makes people uncomfortable, but feel free, in fact, I'd ask you, if you have one thing that you've written that you really think I would get a lot out of based on uh, this conversation, I, I'd be happy to start there. Um, but of course, yeah. Whatever you have to recommend, I'd be really interested in, in wading into. Um, yeah, I mean, I was gonna, I thought you were going to ask for other suggestions. I mean, I would say, you know, read Seven Story Mountain, read Merton. Um, as I did early on when I got to India, read the Bhagavad Gita, one of the greatest of Hindu texts. Uh, it's, it's a short little book, but the teachings of Krishna to the warrior Arjuna, Bhagavad Gita. And I think the first Hindu, in a way, Hindu book I loved Rabindranath Tagore, T-A-G-O-R-E, uh, won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1913, I think, for his little book called Gitanjali. And Gitanjali is a set of poems, mystical poetry, uh, for which he won the Nobel Prize. And it's one of the most beautiful books. And it's Hindu-inspired, Hindu-grounded, but it's really for everybody. So read Merton, read Bhagavad Gita, read Gitanjali. Now, of my writings, um, one book that I wrote, um, I did a, I, I used to blog for America Magazine, the Jesuit Magazine, and I did a, um, a book, I think it's called Learning Interreligiously in the Text in the World. 
And that book, which uh, came out from Fortress Press a few years ago, is a hundred of the blogs I wrote for America. Have, some of them have to do with topical events. Others have to do with you know, reading the Yoga Sutras in Lent or reading the Quran in the face of anti, you know, Islamic, Islamophobia. Um, so it's a hundred short pieces, two or three pages each, that you might find enjoyable uh, as a starting point. I could go on and on from there, but that might be a good one to start with. Beautiful. Well, I have some homework. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, Father Clooney, thank you so much for this time. Um, sure. Yeah, I really appreciate you uh, playing ball with some of those questions. I have a, another question for you. If you could turn off the recording, I have another. Totally. Uh, well, give me a second to figure that out. <laughs>